Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Matthew chapter 20. The parable at the beginning of chapter 20 flows very naturally out of the dialogue at the end of chapter 19 between Jesus and a young man, a rich young ruler, actually, if we combine the descriptions provided by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This man had come to Jesus asking questions about eternal life. And everyone listening in must have assumed that of all the people that spoke to Jesus that day, surely this man was close to the kingdom of heaven. He was pious, he was observant, and he was rich. In the Judaism of Jesus' day, that fact alone would have convinced many people that he was already living under the favor and blessing of God. And yet, after spending a few minutes with Jesus, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Chapter 19, verse 22. So this person that everyone assumed to have been close turned out to be far away. This person everyone assumed to be first turned out to be last. And this then leads very naturally into a further discussion of how the grace of God turns our expectations and assumptions about life and about the kingdom completely upside down. We'll begin reading at verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went out. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So, the last will be first, and the first last. The parable is built around a story with many familiar elements. The climactic addition of atypical elements at the end of the story leads to surprise and further reflection. That's how a lot of parables work. At the start of the story, you're supposed to say, 
I know this one, or this sounds a lot like what happened to my friend. But then all of a sudden, the story takes a totally unexpected twist, and that's where all the teaching happens. This parable is trying to get us to think about how the surprising and altogether sovereign grace of God causes many who are first in this world to become last, and many who are last in this world to become first. Again, the parable can be understood as a further commentary upon the surprising encounter Jesus had with the rich young ruler, a person that everyone present would have considered first in terms of being a likely candidate for the kingdom of God, but he turned out to be last. It it turns out he had a serious obstacle to overcome, and that at present anyway was keeping him outside and even pushing him away from the kingdom of God. So let's think about these two stories together as they mutually interpret each other. Jesus seems to be saying, first of all, that the grace of God is given to many people whom we would never consider worthy of receiving it. That's obviously the main point of the parable. The people who worked the whole day got what they deserved. But the people who worked only an hour received far more than they expected, far more than we, the listeners, expected. So God's grace is given out in surprising ways to people we would generally consider unworthy of receiving it. Secondly, it seems like Jesus is saying that the fact that God gives grace in unexpected ways does not mean that he is ultimately unfair. God is never unfair. That's not what's going on in the story. The master in the parable was fair to some, and surprisingly generous to others. But he wasn't deceitful or dishonest to anyone. He was just with some and gracious to others, as was his right to be. You see, we sometimes think that if God isn't generous and merciful to everyone equally, then he has been unjust and unkind. But that is not the case. God is just to some. That is, he gives to some exactly what they have earned, while to others he gives more than they could have ever hoped for, asked for, or imagined. But he does not act in an unfair manner to anyone. Thirdly, Jesus seems to be saying here that the surprising grace of God may irritate some people who have a rigid quid pro quo understanding of religion. We think, for example, of the parable of the prodigal son and the irritation of the older brother. He was bothered by the grace and mercy shown by the father to the wasteful and sinful son. It made him feel like he was being mistreated, despite that he was not. And it is easy to imagine how the parable of the workers might well have irritated the rich young ruler had he stuck around to hear it. He wanted to earn his way into the Father's good graces. He was willing to work hard. He was willing to go above and beyond. And he would likely have been annoyed at the mercy and grace of God being given to people who had done so little to deserve it. The parable is thus a warning to all people who want to earn their salvation. And it is a warning to each of us to check our hearts for irritation towards those who receive things from God that we're not sure they're worthy of. The story continues in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, 
and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised up on the third day. How fitting it is that immediately following a parable about the surprising grace of God, we have the third and final passion prediction of the Lord Jesus. What could be more surprising than this? That God would give his only son to die for our salvation. Praise the Lord. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." Here we are reminded that the disciples still do not really understand. They are seeking power and privilege and prestige, while Jesus is predicting his betrayal, death, and resurrection. The disciples are still thinking that the kingdom will come immediately, and they want to be first in line. They want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. They want to be the premier leaders in the kingdom. They are more like the rich young ruler than they realize. They have forgotten everything Jesus just said about true greatness in the kingdom of God back in chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, and also what he has just said about the sovereign and surprising grace of God. James and John obviously do not understand. They don't really see yet what is coming. They don't see the serving and the suffering that will necessarily characterize all leadership in the kingdom of God during the time of the great delay. They don't know about that yet but they will come to know about it personally and experientially in due time. James, of course, was the first of the 12 disciples to be martyred, and John was imprisoned and tortured and exiled on the island of Patmos. They did drink the cup. But at this point in the story, they have absolutely no idea what they're asking. Verse 24, And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Here we are reminded that leadership in the kingdom of God is explicitly not like leadership in the world. Leadership in the world is about power and position and prestige. Leadership in the kingdom of God is about service, suffering, and sacrifice. And therefore, the one does not qualify you for the other. And the one must not imitate the other. Our model for leadership is Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It, it boggles my mind, quite honestly, how often we in the church look to models of leadership in the world, how often we hold up successful athletes or successful politicians or successful business leaders as if they are a model for us to follow. When Jesus says explicitly here, do not, do not imitate leadership as you have experienced it, as you have seen it, In the world. That's not how we do things. Things in the kingdom are explicitly different 
than that. Our model for leadership is Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, incidentally, this, of course, introduces an important metaphor for understanding the cross. According to this verse, in some way, the death of Jesus on the cross was a ransom that set many people free. So what, what does that mean? What, what, what price is being paid? To whom is the price being paid? We have some questions. The Greek word lutron was most commonly used to refer to the purchase price of a slave. Thus, we understand Jesus saying that his death on the cross would purchase many out of slavery. Many scholars see this as a further allusion to the main suffering servant passage in Isaiah chapter 52 and chapter 53. As, for example, Isaiah 52, 15, which says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And Isaiah 53, 4 to 6, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then perhaps most importantly here, Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. D.A. Carson, for example, says here, the implication of the cumulative evidence is that Jesus explicitly referred to himself as Isaiah's suffering servant and interpreted his own death in that light, an interpretation in which Matthew has followed his Lord, closed quote. Now, as to the identity of the one who receives the payment, uh, scholars differ somewhat. William Hendrickson says here, the ransom price was paid not as Origen maintained to Satan, but to the Father, as per Romans 3, 23-25, who also himself, together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, had made arrangements for the salvation of his people. Closed quote. Other scholars prefer not to go quite that far, not to be quite that precise in parsing the metaphor. So, for example, R.T. France says, There is, of course, no exact analogy between Jesus' death and such ransom language, so that the passage does not require us to ask to whom payment is made, or how the equivalent is calculated. The point is that a payment was needed to achieve the release of many, and that Jesus' death provides it. Closed quote. Thanks be to God. We pick up the story in verse 29. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now, this story is placed here, first and foremost, because it happened here. It happened as Jesus was leaving Jericho and heading up toward Jerusalem and the cross. It is likely also placed here because it so perfectly illustrates what Jesus has been saying to the disciples 
about the nature of ministry and leadership within the kingdom of heaven. It is not targeted at those we might expect. It is for those who are so easy to overlook according to worldly standards. One doesn't serve in the kingdom of God in order to obtain fame, power, and earthly recompense. One serves and sacrifices as Jesus did for the sake of the lowly, the needy, the least, and the last. Those sovereignly chosen to receive a surprisingly generous portion of the grace, mercy, and compassion of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population, with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at End of the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.